Hey, I'm Michael, online pastor at Silverdale Baptist Church, and I'm excited to welcome you to our podcast. Now, after you listen to this episode, I hope you'll stick around for just a moment. I'll be sharing about some resources we have for you, as well as a few things going on at Silverdale right now that we would love for you to be a part of. Now, I really hope this podcast is just what you need today to help you in your relationship with Jesus. Again, good morning and welcome to Silverdale. I'm so glad that you're here today. I'm Tony Wallace, I'm one of the pastors here at Silverdale, and I get the privilege each week of sharing with you God's Word. So go ahead and do this. Take your Bibles, and you can open up in the Old Testament to the book of Psalms, Psalm chapter 2, and then you can do this as well. Take out these Bible study outlines that we provide for you, and you can follow along and take notes. Also, if you have the Silverdale app, you can open up our Silverdale app, and you can take notes right there on your device as we study God's Word together. As most of you know, we're in a series called God Is. And what we're doing each week is we're looking at different characteristics of God. God's word reveals who God is, and so we're learning different aspects of God's nature and what he's like. It's been an amazing study. But today, we're going to be looking at Psalm 2, and specifically, we're going to be studying the sovereignty of God. Now, that's a big theological word, the theologians say, but the sovereignty of God just simply means this, God is in control. God's in control. Say that with me out loud. God is in control. God's in control. That's sovereignty. That means that God rules. He reigns. He's the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. He is in control. Now, there's hundreds of verses that teach that God is sovereign, ruler, and in control. Let me give you several verses, and you can see them up on the screen. I've put a few of them on your outline. Psalm 103.19 says this. The Lord has established his throne in heaven, and his kingdom rules over all. God rules, okay? What does it say? 2 Chronicles 29, 12. Riches and honor come from you, Lord. You are the ruler of everything. Power and might are in your hand, and it is in your hand to make great and to give strength. I know that we've got an election coming up in November, but do you know what the Bible says? God is the one who exalts kings and puts down kingdoms. You don't have to stress out about it. God's the one who's in control. Isaiah chapter 14, verse 24 says this, the Lord of hosts has sworn, as I have planned, so shall it be. As I have purpose, so shall it stand. Nothing's gonna stop God's sovereign plan. Job chapter 42, verse 2 says this, I know you, God, can do anything, and no plan of yours can be thwarted. You ain't stopping God, right? The Apostle Paul in the book of Ephesians talks about God in this way in your life. We were predestined according to the plan of the one who works out everything in keeping with the decision of his will. God predestines according to his plan and will. And then The final book of the Bible is Revelation. Revelation 19, 16 says this. He is a name written on his robe and on his thigh, King of kings and Lord of lords. Now, all those verses and hundreds more all are saying a very similar thing. God reigns. He rules. He's in control. He is sovereign over all. Some people will push back on that. And they'll say, now, wait, wait, wait. If God is sovereign over all, then why is there so much evil and pain in this world? Right? Good question. 
God's sovereign over all. Why is there so much evil and pain in this world? And the answer is very simple. Because God has given you freedom of choice. God has not created any robots in this room. God has given to every one of you the freedom to choose, freedom of choice. And all you gotta do is look at your own life and see the brokenness in your own life because of your choices or look around this culture and see the brokenness in our culture because of our free will choices. That's why there's evil in this world because God's given us free will. Now you go, wait, wait, wait. That leads to sort of a little conundrum, right? I mean, wait, how in the world can you have freedom and sovereignty at the same time. How does the freedom of humanity and the sovereignty of God coexist? I mean, think about it. If it's really true that we are free and we can make whatever choices we want to, I mean, right, that's what God said, choose you this day who you're gonna serve. If you really have freedom, then isn't that going to thwart the plans of God? No. In fact, you having freedom displays even the greater grandeur of the power of God. That even though we are free and we create a whole lot of evil in this world, God still sovereignly works. Let me see if I can illustrate it like this. I mean, all human analogies break down when it comes to describing God this way. But just imagine freedom and sovereignty like this. Imagine you're going to play chess with God. Okay? You're going to play chess with God. And God says, Choose whatever strategy, whatever moves, whatever plans you want to do, do it, right? Now, again, you're not playing some chess grandmaster who they can, you know, think about moving about 15 moves in advance. No, you're playing God. And God knows the beginning from the end. He knows your thoughts before you even think it. And so go ahead, make all your plans. Go ahead, come up with all your schemes. God says, go for it, but I'm still God. And what God will do is he will plan every move and counter move to bring about the greatest glory for him and the greatest good for you. That's the power of our sovereign God. Yes, we have freedom of will, but in the end, you can make your moves, but God's going to win. In fact, that's a great definition of sovereignty. God wins. Turn to the person next to you and remind them, God wins. God wins. God wins. Now, you see a great balance of these two found in Proverbs chapter 16, verse 9. A person's heart plans his way, but the Lord determines his step. Now, let me show you, give you an illustration of this, of how this is true, okay? Quick show of hands. How many of you married someone different than the first person you fell in love with? Anybody besides me? Raise your hands. Don't lie. Come on. You should be smiling. Woohoo! Hallelujah! I didn't marry that person, right? See, you made your plans, but God is sovereign, isn't He? How about this? How many of you have a different job than what you first planned to go into? Anybody besides me? Yeah, again, look around. Now, I know that a lot of you have grown up in Chattanooga, but how many of you, you know what? Chattanooga is not the first city you moved to as an adult. You had other plans. Anybody besides me? Yeah, a lot. Right. I mean, the fact is, is, I mean, before this church called me here 25 years ago, I didn't even know where Chattanooga was on the map. The truth is, I can make my plans, but God orders my steps. That's the plan. That's the sovereignty and the free will of God working out. Now, this is real important. Why? Because whenever you understand the sovereignty of God, this will either lead to anxiety, oh my goodness, God's in control, or peace, oh my goodness, God's in control, right? 
Because I don't know about you, for me, one of the greatest struggles of my flesh is anxiety. And when the pressures of life start coming down on me and I'm feeling that anxiety, it's like God's red flag saying, Tony, you ain't God. You've got no control over this. Will you surrender this to me? And the sweet surrender of God's sovereignty takes over. That's what's going on here. Now, we can, you know, talk about the sovereignty of God from theological ways or, you know, theoretical ways, but what I want to do today, I want to talk about it from a very practical way, and that's why we're looking at Psalm chapter 2. Now, most of you have probably never studied the second Psalm. In fact, as I look back, I realize in my 30-plus years of pastoring, I've never taught on Psalm 2, and yet Psalm 2 is one of the most quoted Psalms in all of the New Testament, Why? Because it talks about the proper response to the sovereignty and rule of God. And so there's several principles that I want us to learn from this psalm. We're going to go just verse by verse all the way through it, okay? The first principle is this. Jot this down. Humanity rebels. Humanity rebels against the sovereignty of God. That's how this psalm starts off. Look at it, verse 1. Why do the nations rage? Don't we have a rage culture today? Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, against the Christ. I mean, why, why do people plot? Why, why, are they, you know, why are they raging? Well, there's one reason. They don't want God telling them what to do. Verse 3, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. In essence, they're saying, I ain't living under God's rule. God ain't going to tell me what to do. You see, Within the heart of every one of us is a rebel. We were all born with a clenched fist and our backs turned away from God. God, you ain't telling me what to do. And we live in an entire culture. It's a rage culture that says, you can't tell me what's right and wrong. Ain't no ancient God gonna tell me how to live my life, right? That's our entire culture. We are little rebels in all of our hearts. That's why people wanna own their own business. Why? Because they don't have a boss. I can be my own boss. I don't have to answer anybody. That's why children rebel against parents. Not you, of course. You are all perfect little children, right? But but, but why? Why do children rebel against parents? It's really simple. They think, I know better than they do. They don't understand me. And we go through life, and you know what? We can think that we're doing okay ruling our own life for a while until what happens? Then the roller coasters of life kick in, right? Have you ever felt like this kid right here in that picture right there? Right? Whenever suddenly the roller coaster of life starts going down and it's like, my life is out of control. Ah, get me off this ride, right? And that's the way it is. And can I just tell you something? You're not in control. You're not. You're not a, you, you can't stop the aging. You, you probably can't get the spouse back. You, you can't change that financial decision. You, you can't change that health scare. I mean, The fact is, you're not sovereign. You are not in control. And so every one of us have this tendency to rebel against God. I'm going to do my thing. I'm going to do what I want to do because I'm my own king. You can see this over and over again in the Bible. I mean, the very first rebel against God was Satan, Lucifer. He was one of the angels. Why did he rebel? Because he looked at the throne of God and said, I can do that. Or, you know, the Bible starts off in the book of Genesis with Adam and Eve, and they, in essence, say to God, God, you ain't going to tell us what fruit to eat or not eat. Or or you, you have the prophet Jonah. God says, go this way, and Jonah goes the exact opposite. 
Or you come in the New Testament and you have people that are following Jesus and this rich young ruler comes and says, Jesus, I want to go to heaven. How? Jesus says, awesome, so excited. This is what I want you to do. I want you to sell everything you've got, give it to the poor and come follow me. And he goes, are you crazy? I ain't following you like that. I mean, even the religious leaders, right? Why did they crucify Jesus? Because they felt threatened. Let's kill him. The Bible is filled with this truth stamped in the heart of every one of us is the declaration of independence. Ain't nobody going to be the boss of me. That's the, what's the human nature. That's how this psalm starts. Sovereignty of God, we rebel. So what's God's response to our rebellion? Jot this down. God laughs. God laughs. I'm not making that up. That's exactly what the next verse says. Verse 4, check it out. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord ridicules them. God looks down at all of us humans and goes, look at them. They're trying to run their own life. They think that they can outmaneuver me and they can make the decisions and they think their life is better than what I could give them. It's laughable. I mean, but why does God laugh? Because he's not threatened by our sovereignty. He's not. I mean, it's not like God's up in heaven going, oh my goodness, there's so many of them. Look at them. They're so big and strong and got big muscles. They work out in the gym and drink muscle milk. (gasps) No. God's not up there. He's not frightened by any of this. We think we're going to throw off the bonds of God's sovereignty. We're fooling ourselves. It's a joke. When I read this psalm, it reminded me of that scene from the movie Night at the Museum. Ben Stiller's character, he's a night's watchman, and one night, the, um, the, there's a revolt against him. Check out this scene from Night at the Museum. Every night, year after year, one of you gods locks us up in these boxers. Well, I hereby say, sir, enough! Fire up the iron horse, boys. We got a breach! And that is basically what it looks like when we try to rebel against God. Really? We're going to throw off the bonds of God's sovereignty? I don't think so. And so the natural tendency of all of us is that we rebel against God's lordship. God laughs at that. But then God has a solution for us, and it's this. Number three, God crowns a king. God crowns a king for us and sets up a kingdom for us, the coronation of the king. Netflix came out with a series called The Crown a few years ago, and it's basically about the life of the British queen Elizabeth. And when I first saw it, I thought, eh, I wouldn't be interested. But the fact is, is I love history, and it was really intriguing. I mean, the fact is, is that Queen Elizabeth, she was crowned queen when she was 25 years old. That was her official coronation. That's whenever they put the the crown on her and said, okay, you are now the queen. You're the sovereign over all of the British Empire. Now, here's the thing. Psalm chapter 2 is a coronation psalm. You go, what does that mean? That means that every king in Israel and Judah, that when they were 
crowned, they read this psalm. Because this psalm promises that God's going to set up a king one day. You have David, and then you have Solomon, and then one king follows another king, which follows another king. And every time they crown that king, they're looking at him saying, are you the one? Are you the one? Are you the one that God promised and prophesied about? Are you the one? And guess what? None of them were the one, were they? In fact, you can go back and read the Old Testament. Some of those kings in Israel and Judah, they were wicked, bad kings. I mean, you think... Washington's corrupt? Go back and read the Old Testament. Look at some of those kings. That is corrupt leadership, folks. And after every one, they're not the one. They're not the one. They're not the one. Well, who is God's king? Well, this psalm predicts it. Look at it. It's found in verse 6. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. In your outline circle, you are my son. Now, can you think of anybody in the New Testament who is declared as the king and is also called the son of God? Anything come to your mind? It's obviously Jesus Christ, right? Of course it is. I mean, at Jesus' birth, what? The angel said to Mary. What did he say? He says, the holy one to be born will be called the son of God. Do you remember what happened at Jesus' baptism? Jesus was baptized, came out of the water, and the Bible says the heavens opened. Holy Spirit descended on him like a dove, and then God spoke from heaven. And what did he say? Look at it, Matthew 3, 17. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Folks, that's coronation language. God is saying, this is my son. He's gonna be the king. In fact, that's ultimately why Jesus Christ got crucified, because he claimed to be the son of God. Check it out. John chapter five, verse 18 says this. This is why the Jews began trying all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal to God. And so the apostles, whenever Jesus Christ was resurrected, the apostles begin to proclaim, here's the good news. Jesus is the son of God. He's been declared the king. You go, where does that sing? Well, let's show you one passage. Acts chapter 13, verse 32. The apostle Paul says this. As we ourselves proclaim to you the good news, the gospel, of the promise that was made to our ancestors... God has fulfilled this for us, their children. How? By raising up Jesus. Paul, where did you read that at? As it is written in the second Psalm, that's what we're studying today, you are my son, today I've become your father. That's why whenever Jesus Christ first came on the scene, what was his message? Repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus is God's Messiah. Jesus is God's king. Jesus is God's son. And after the resurrection, What happened? Jesus made this declaration. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. I'm now the king. Go in that authority. Or Philippians chapter 2. There's been given to Jesus a name that's above every name. That the name of Jesus Christ, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. That Jesus Christ is Lord. He is the king. And so what's going to happen? I mean, Jesus is the king, right? But guess what? This king is coming again, folks. In fact, that's what the psalm predicts. Look at it now in verse eight. God says, ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like potter's vessel. Folks, when Jesus Christ comes again, he's not coming the same way. 
When Jesus came the first time, he came as the suffering servant to die for our sins. But whenever he comes again, he's coming as king of kings and lord of lords to rule and reign forever and ever. He's coming as the conquering king. And so here's God. And God says, okay, I'm sovereign, I'm in control. You can try to rebel against me, that's laughable. But what I've done is I've set up a king and a kingdom. His name is Jesus Christ. So what's the proper response? That's number four, jot this down. What is the proper response to God's sovereignty? Well, ultimately, it's to quit rebelling against God and surrender to him. Several weeks back, I read an article from the Chicago Times. It was an article about this man named Jamie who was being sued by one of his ex-wives for custody of their children. She's a Christian, had raised her kids in the church, and her ex-husband, Jamie, had just joined the church of Satan, okay? And so um, he basically, you know, he's, he got a tattoo of an um, upside-down cross on his leg, and she said he is just ripping our family apart and just teaching our kids all these crazy stuff. And so in the, um, um, in the trial for the custody, he brought in one of the high priests of the church of Satan to testify that, you know what, you know, the church of Satan really ain't that bad. And this is what the high priest said, quote, Satanism is the world's first carnal religion. Satanists are atheists, not devil worshipers. We see Satan as being a symbol of pride, liberty, individualism. The upside-down cross simply represents our belief in the opposite of humility. Satanism celebrates God's selfish, I mean, man's selfish desires. Now, you may be, yeah, you know what? I'm not gonna submit to God's sovereignty, but I'm not worshiping Satan. Well, in essence, you are. Because if you're not surrendered to the cross of Jesus Christ, then ultimately you're surrendered to the upside-down cross. How do I know that? Well, go back and look at the temptations of Jesus Christ himself. You remember whenever Satan took Jesus up on this mountain, showed him all the glories of all the kingdoms of all time, and then Satan says to Jesus, Jesus, they're all yours. No cross, no suffering. You can have them right now, Jesus. You can have all the kingdom, but this is what you gotta do. You gotta bow down and worship me. And Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. The word says you shall worship the Lord God and serve him only. You see, whenever you say, I'm going to rebel against God's sovereignty, you're, you're ultimately sovereign to someone else then. You're sovereign to yourself and your own pride. I am so thankful Jesus didn't go for the upside-down cross. Jesus went for God's will, the real cross, and so must I, you and I. And so here we are. God says, okay, I've set up this kingdom. Now, what is your proper response? Two things I want you to jot down in the outline. Number one, first of all, you be submissive to God's rule. Quit rebelling and choose to be submissive to God's rule. Notice how this is written in verse 10. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, rulers of the earth. Let me just say that to you. If you're here and you're the king of your own life, you're the Lord of your own life, be wise, be warned, serve the Lord with fear, rejoice with trembling. In your outline circle, rejoice with trembling. You go, well, why should I rejoice with trembling? Well, first of all, he's God, right? And that, that should bring the trembling, but you should rejoice because he is a good God. He's a good father. You see, whenever Jesus Christ came, he came to be the king. 
And whenever you come to that place of being a Christian, what are you saying? You're saying, Jesus, I want to make you my king. Jesus, I need a regime change. I've been in control of my life long enough. I've made a mess of my life. God, I need a regime change. I want you to be my king. And so what do you do? Look at what it says, verse 12. This is your heart response to the King Jesus. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Now, you probably have watched enough movies to know what that's talking about, that whenever you have a king who conquers another king, what does that conquered king do? He comes before the king that has just destroyed him, and he kneels down before him. And what does he do? He either kisses his feet or kisses his ring. Right. What is he saying? He's saying, I surrender all to you. And it's the same way for you. You may call yourself a Christian, but if there is not a point in your life where you said, I surrender all to Jesus, then you're not a Christian. Are you tracking with me? I mean, a lot of people have a head knowledge religion, and they got all the the information about Christianity, but they've never surrendered their life to Jesus Christ. That's what it means to become a Christian. You say, Jesus, I surrender all. The Bible says, whosoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Jesus needs to be your Lord. You say, Jesus, you're the boss of me. In essence, it's like this. All of us, we have our crowns. And we live our life being in control and in the rule of our lives. And we come to this realization that I can't do it. I ain't created to be the king. And so what I'm going to do is, Jesus, I'm relinquishing my authority, and I am giving it all to you, Jesus. You're the king. You're the ruler. Listen to me. Christ didn't come to be your good buddy. Jesus didn't come to be your life coach. Jesus came to be your king. And so you surrender to him as king. That's what the Bible says. So here's the gospel. You have rebelled against God's sovereign rule. Every one of us here have committed acts of treason against him. But if you will repent, and if you will say, God, I surrender, I'm stopped fighting, I'm I'm giving in the territory to you. You know what? He's not gonna banish you. You know what he'll do? He'll forgive you. And he'll invite you to be a citizen of his kingdom. Kiss the son. Kiss the son. So that's the first response. I'm surrendering to the sovereignty of Jesus Christ and his rule in my life. But then there's a second thing. And this is where it gets real exciting. Jot this down. Take refuge in God's rule. Take refuge in God's rule. Because, yes, we surrender to Jesus, but guess what? You can have hope and peace and serenity in surrender. Look at how this psalm ends, verse 12. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. In your outline, circle the word blessed there. What does that mean? That means it's the favor of God. God's blessings, God's favor, God's happiness, God's joy happens to those who take refuge in him. See, I believe that there's some of you, that's exactly where you are. You're facing these stresses in your life. I don't know what it may be. It may be your marriage. It may be your finances. It may be your health. And you're overwhelmed. And what you need to do is take refuge in the sovereignty of God, the sweet sovereignty of God, saying, God, here it is. I'm going to trust you with my life. I'm going to trust you in this time of chaos. Now, that doesn't mean that you're going to have a pain-free life. That doesn't mean that you know, you're gonna bypass all the crosses in this life. You, you won't. 
But you know what? Despite the pain, you can trust in him and find rest in him. Do you know that's exactly what the New Testament Christians did? You have the book of Acts. It's sort of the history of the early church. And in Acts chapter 4, you have the apostles, specifically Peter and John, were arrested by the Sanhedrin. Those are the group that put Jesus to death, okay? And so they stand before the Sanhedrin, and they warn Peter and John. They say, you stop preaching in Jesus' name. If you don't, we're coming after you. And so what did they do? They came back to the church and reported how they were threatened. Look at it. It's found in Acts chapter 4, verse 23. It says this. After they were released... They went to their own people and reported everything the chief priests and the elders had said. When they heard this, the church, they raised their voices together to God and said, Master, you are the one who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. What are they saying? God, you are sovereign. And then what do they do? They start singing Psalm 2. For you, through the Holy Spirit, by the mouth of our father David, your servant, said, Why do the nations, the Gentiles rage, and the peoples blot futile things? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers assemble together against the Lord and against his Messiah. What are they doing? They're in the middle of a chaotic time, and they sing Psalm 2. They say, God, you're sovereign, you're Lord. Listen, there's going to be times in your life when things are not going to turn out the way you planned. There's going to be times in your life when things will not turn out the way that you scripted. And what you've got to do is come to that place of resting in the sweet sovereignty of God. God, I don't understand it, but I'm going to trust you with it. One of the greatest verses in the Bible that describe the sovereignty of God is found in Romans chapter 8, verse 28. Most of you probably have this verse memorized. Look at it again with me. It says this. We know, we don't think, we know that God causes all things to work together for good, to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. In your outline, circle all things, all things. Now, that's not saying that all things are good. No, there's a lot of things that happen in your life that are not good, but God is so sovereign, he is so powerful, he causes all things to work together for good. What does that mean? That means that even when you don't see it or understand it, God has a bigger picture than what you can understand or see. Uh, it's a humorous story about this um, king who once had an advisor. And this advisor had this annoying habit of every time something would happen, he'd go, that's good. Oh, that's good. Well, one particular day, the king was hunting, and he had a hunting accident, and his toe got chopped off. And the advisor goes, well, that's good. That's good. And the king looks at him and goes, no, this is not good. I just got my toe chopped off. You're fired. And so the advisor's leaving the king, and he turns around and goes, that's good, that's good. And then he leaves. Well, a couple months go by, and you have this pagan tribesmen that capture the king. And they're planning on killing him in this sacrificial ceremony. And just before they sacrifice the king, they examine his body, and they notice that a toe is missing. Well, he's unclean. It's not good for the sacrifice. So they let him go. He goes back to the palace And he rehires the advisor and says, you know what? You were right. It really was good that my toe was chopped off. But I I need to know, why did you say it was good that I fired you? And the advisor says, well, I didn't know that for sure until just now. You see, if you had not fired me, I would have been right by your side when you were captured. And after they examined that you didn't have a toe, they would notice that I have all my fingers and toes, and I would have been the sacrifice in your place. So you see, it really is good. 
And it is. You see, you may not see the big picture all the time, but God is saying, I'm so big, I'm so great, I'm so sovereign that I cause all things to work together for good. A great biblical example of this in the Old Testament is Joseph. Remember his story in the book of Genesis? You got Joseph, hated by his brothers, sold into slavery, falsely accused of rape, thrown into prison and forgot there. And yet Joseph the whole time put his hope in God. Though he did not see it, he trusted in the sovereign hand of God, working all things together. And so what happened? Eventually, years later, he was released from prison. He became the second most powerful man in all of Egypt, and he saved millions of people from a famine. And it was years later, his brothers came to him, and this is what he said to them. In Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, it's the Romans 8, 28 of the Old Testament. Joseph said to his brothers, you planned evil against me. God planned it for good to bring about the present result, the survival of many people. Literally, he's saying, you weaved evil against me, but God reweaved it for something good. And that's exactly what God's doing in your life. Some of you are facing Joseph moments right now. You're being hurt by somebody. Maybe it's you're being hurt by an ex-spouse or hurt by a boss or hurt by a child. And it's real. Now, what I would say to you is this. If you're being abused, you better protect yourself. God doesn't expect you to be abused by anybody, okay? Secondly, you speak the truth and love to that person. But then thirdly, you put your hope and you rest in the sovereignty of God. You say, God, I don't understand it. I can't see it. But God, I'm going to trust in you through it. That's what Joseph did. And you know what God does? God works all things together. Now, Joseph, he could see it all working out together. He saw it in his lifetime how good came about from the bad, right? Now, to be honest, a lot of us, we can't see it. There's a number of us that bad things happen to us in this life, and we say, okay, God, I'm going to trust you that you're going to work all things together for good, but you may not know what the good is this side of heaven. And if that's you, then you need to respond the way Job did. Do you remember Job in the Old Testament? The guy lost his fortune, his finances, lost his family, then he lost his health. He could see no earthly good for all his losses, and yet he still made this declaration about God. Look at it, it's found in Job chapter one, verse 21. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gives, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Listen to me, there's gonna be times where you will not see the bigger picture. And in those times, you gotta hold on to a bigger God. Let me say that again. There's gonna be those times that you will not see the bigger picture, and in those times, you cling to a bigger God. Job says, I don't see it, but God, you're still good, you're still great, you're gonna work all things together. So quit rebelling against God. Come to the place of surrender to him. Jesus is the king, he has a kingdom. Come to that place of sweet surrender. The Bible ends in Psalm 2. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. God promises blessings if you will surrender to his sovereignty. He's a sovereign God. Trust him. Well, I hope this was helpful to you. If while listening, you realized you need to take the next step in your relationship with Jesus, we would love to help you with that. You can connect with us by clicking the link in the show notes to our website and then clicking the connect card button. In our weekend worship services, we are in a sermon series called The Seven Commands of Christ. Jesus gave dozens of commands, and as followers of Jesus, we should obey all of them. 
Over the next several weeks, we are focusing on seven that will change your life. We would love for you to join each week at one of our campuses, or you can attend online. You will find service times by clicking the link in the show notes to our website. You know, there's so many ways for you to get involved and be a part of what God is doing here at Silverdale, and we really want you to feel welcome and a part. So please stay connected. Be sure to like and follow us on the different social media accounts. You'll find all the links in the show notes of this episode. And lastly, help us spread the word about this podcast. Take a moment to share this episode with your family and friends. Again, we appreciate you listening and hope you will join us again next time.